As Ron said, we are in Psalm 8 this morning. I had people asking me, why'd you go to Psalm 8? What happened to Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7? And I said, well, that's flyover territory. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, I thought those, you know, those psalms are all very good, and there's some good ones in there. But I wanted something uplifting this morning. And uh, I thought what I would do, you know, I'm, I'm preaching through the psalms here every, when I get the chance to preach. And so what I thought I would do is kind of buzz the treetops of the psalms and not hit every single one, because there's 150 of them in case you, you haven't noticed that. And it would take me like a lifetime to get through them. And so I thought, well, we'll just buzz the treetops. And I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Psalm 8, so here we are. Uh, before I get started on that, let me just say one other thing. Uh, tomorrow night, I know it's Labor Day, but tomorrow night starts the FIT program as well. And uh, we do have a couple of FIT classes, and we've taken the Old Testament and combined the last two classes there and scrunched them down into one, uh, and it's now 15 weeks. And then the second class that we're offering is a class on spiritual gifts. And I've had some people ask me about the class and what does it entail and what does it involve. And so I'll give you kind of a quick summary of where we're going with that class, okay? We're looking, most of you know that charismatic issues in the church have exploded in the last several years. Uh, Thousand percent growth in the U.S. alone in the last 20 years. Thousand percent. Historically, the church has been cessationist, what we call. Uh, We don't believe that the miraculous sign gifts are still in existence, Why is that? How would you defend whether or not tongues should still be spoken today? What about people performing healings? How would you defend the Scriptures against that? What about uh, raising the dead? We hear people raise the dead in other countries. We hear of miraculous things going on around the world. How do we know those things have stopped? And that's the question. And so what we're going to do in this class is, is rather than just deal with each one of those issues specifically, I've, I've taken uh, and tried to do a, a sort of a biblical perspective on, on the nature of sign gifts. Okay, So we're going to look at the Old Testament prophets. We're going to work our way to the New Testament, to the Messiah and the miracles and signs and wonders that He did. We're going to look at the Apostles' ministry. We're going to look at the apostles and the prophets. Then we're going to look at the apostle Paul specifically. And then we're going to see how the gifts that all the prophets of God and the apostles of God did were different than what was given to the church at large. Not everybody could do what the apostles did. They were never meant to do it. Um, Then we will look at the gifts as they're played out in the church. And then from there how you can serve in the body. And and then at the end of the class, we'll take a look at some of the deviant things that are out there and how we might respond to them. So I encourage you, if you are interested in this area at all or or you know somebody, I'm sure uh, one out of every three Christians in the U.S. is now charismatic. So how do you speak to those people? How do we talk to them about these issues? Is it Are we going to trust the experiences or are we going to go with what the Word of God says? And so I would encourage you, if you're interested at all, 
The class begins tomorrow night, and um, that's enough of a commercial. The, uh, the views expressed by this commercial are not necessarily represented. Uh, I'm just kidding. Okay, so Psalm 8. You know, one of the things that I love about living in California is the fact that we have the best weather here, don't we? Praise God for good weather. I'm serious. We have the best weather, and it allows us to be outside more than anywhere else in the country. Right? You could go back east, you get buried in snowstorms, or the Middle East, and you get ripped up by a tornado, or you know, up to Seattle, and you get rained on all day. Highest suicide rate. Okay, never. <laughs> but here in California, we have the best weather, which allows us to be outside. And the great thing about it is the fact that within a few miles radius, we have mountains, right? We have the desert. I don't know who would want to go there, but we have the desert. <laughs> and we have the beaches, right? We have the beaches. What a blessing. I am not particularly a beach guy. I go down there maybe once or twice a year, show off my six-pack, you know. <laughs> but I, 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 seriously, I like to go to the beach just to be reminded of how small I am. I don't know about you, but when you stand on the shore and you watch these waves roll in and you look out at the horizon, don't you feel about this small? I do. And this morning, what I want to do is look at Psalm 8 in light of that, because Psalm 8 does the same thing for us. It makes us feel small, very, very small, but significant. And so this morning, turn to Psalm 8 with me if you're not there already. Let's read through it, and we'll take a closer look at this. As we already have just sung, uh, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and read the... uh, the inscription above verse 1, those, those um, notations at the top there, they're actually part of Scripture. If you look at a Hebrew Old Testament, this phrase, for the choir director, on Gittit, a psalm of David, is actually in verse 1. It's part of inspired Scripture. Did you know that? That's not just a title that the NASB came up with. So, For the choir director, on Gittit, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a great psalm. 
as I said, uh, if you look up at that inscription, the psalm is clearly ascribed to David. David wrote it. It's uncontested. What is not clear is the occasion on which he wrote it, why he wrote it, or how it was used in the worship of ancient Israel. But if you look at verse 3, he says, "...the moon and the stars which you have ordained." He doesn't mention the sun, interestingly enough. And so some people believe that this was probably used during the evening worship. Evening worship. Gittit is a weird expression, and I'm going to tell you a little something about... I don't want to bore you to tears, but I need you to know something. Uh, the phrase for the choir director on the Gittit probably goes with Psalm 7. It doesn't go with Psalm 8. What goes with Psalm 8 is the next phrase beginning verse uh, Psalm 9 for the choir director on Muth Laben. That is probably the one that goes with Psalm 8. What happened is what they call Thirtle's theory, and I don't want to confuse you too much, but the thinking is that musical inscriptions go with the psalm previous. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 3, you'll understand why they believe this. The musical notation usually follows. It doesn't begin. So this get it anyway could be an instrument or it could be a melody. We'll just go ahead and take it as part of this psalm. It's the melody that the words were to be sung to. And some have suggested that David here wrote this after his encounter with Goliath basically because of some of the language that is duplicated in both places. Whether or not that's true, we don't really know. We don't know what the occasion was for the writing of this. I want to explain to you my title. If, you lo- if you're looking at the back of your bulletin, why did I say a heavenly perspective of praise? Well, two reasons. One is that man's consideration of God in the heavens from his earthbound perspective should result in praise to God. And God's consideration of man from his heavenly perspective should also elicit praise to God. God considers us despite our puniness. That's the point of this psalm is that as David looks up at the heavens, he sees the dinkiness of humankind, one speck on one ball in the vast globe of the universe, and he's, he's brought to nothing. And he realizes, why would the God who created everything even take an interest in man? And it's, it's an overwhelming thought. It should overwhelm us this morning. And it should elicit from us praise to God. So this morning, as we look at the psalm, I've, I've divvied it up into two sections here. We're going to see two compelling reasons why God deserves all of our praise. All of our praise. Every last bit of our praise so that we will worship Him the way we ought. The point of this psalm is to drive us to worship, and that's what I hope it will do for us this morning. So look at verse 1 with me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now this is the proper name for God. This is Yahweh. O Yahweh, followed by a recognition of his sovereign rule, Adonai, literally, O Yahweh, our Lord, or Yahweh Adonai. Now this praise, if you look down at the last verse, it's repeated identically. You see that? See how it's repeated down in verse 9? 
And it, and it does what's known in the Psalms as an envelope. It's, it's a bracketing. It's on the front side, it's on the back side. And so we might say in English we call it inclusio, but, but you know, a common word you could just say they're bookends. They're bookends. On the front and the back side, there is praise to God. And this psalm was and is a praise for the nation of Israel. Uh, they would not say, however, when they said Yahweh's name, they would not say Yahweh because they thought it to be too sacred. And so what they would say is Adonai Adonenu, our Lord, Lord of us, right? Lord, Lord of us. They, they would not say his, his actual name. But I, what I want you to notice, the significant thing about this psalm and the way it's broken down is you see that repeated in verse 1 and you see that repeated in verse 9. And look at the first word. The word is how. Do you see that? How majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you see that? And then verse 9, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what we call in Hebrew an exclamatory ma. What does that mean? Well, ma is actually a question in Hebrew. It means what? But here it's being used as an exclamation. How majestic is your name in all the earth, Lord. And then down in verse 4, right smack dab in the middle, is the question, what is man? That is an interrogative ma. And so grammatically what he's done is he's bracketed it on either end with an exclamation with the same word. And right in the middle, he's used the same word to say, what is man? So as you read this psalm, just understand that this is a reflection on the greatness of God and the greatness of the creation. And man can only really understand himself in light of all of that. We only know who we are and the truth about ourselves in light of the truth about who God is. We are a speck of dust in an infinite universe. We are nothing. But the only reason we have significance is because God has made it so. The glory belongs to Him, not to us. The glory belongs to our Creator, not to man. You see the phrase uh, right after that? Who have displayed your splendor above the, the heavens? It describes who God is. This is a relative clause. How majestic is your name in all the earth, Lord? The Lord who has displayed your splendor above the heavens is a creator God. And it's actually the word set or place. And it's essentially saying the God who has made himself known to Israel by his name, their redeemer is the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything they contain. His glory and his splendor are set in the heavens. It should bring to mind Psalm 19, right? The heavens are what? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of His hands. God's glory is set in the heavens. They're fixed. Ultimately, what this is saying, and, and you, should, you should be marveling at the fact that as we read this psalm, David is referring to Genesis 1. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is it's an argument for canonicity. It's an argument for canonicity, beloved. If David, who was around 1000 B.C., had in his hands the creation record, which was at least 
500 years old from the hand of Moses, he was holding in his hand a 500-year-old document. That 500-year-old document that he had in his hands, we now have in our hands how many thousands of years later? Same thing. It's almost identical. Fascinating to me. It's fascinating. I want you to see in the text, though, in verse 2, that there's a contrast. And this is really where we're going to focus our attention here for a moment. There's a contrast in the text that's developed by David as he meditates on creation. And it's the fact that even infants are able to see and respond to God's creation while infidels reject it. Everybody can see it. Everybody can feel it. Everybody knows the sun comes up every day and they know the moon comes up every night and they see the stars and the most brilliant of scientists will look at that and they'll deny God's existence. They're infidels. They're infidels. But infants look at it and they go, whoa, God. There's a contrast here and the The first part of the contrast is that God's glory is affirmed by infants. You see that? From the mouth of children and nursing infants, you have established strength. And David is literally speaking of children. He is literally speaking of children, and he uses the expression sucklings as well. Nursing infants. Sucklings. And as it says in the original language, it says... Children and nursing infants, you have established strength. Some have translated strength as a bulwark. Even the faith of a child is a bulwark enough against the folly of men with corrupt hearts and perverted intellect who can look up at the heavens and see the glory and accredit it to science and not to God. Children in Hebrew culture, by the way, um, Nursing infants could be as old as two or three years old. Women nurse to the age of two or three. So that's the nursing infant category. Children are slightly older than that. David is saying that how can a child look at the heavens and draw such a simple conclusion, and yet the most brilliant scientists look at the same thing, and they're enemies of God. They're enemies. It's a contrast. The Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, translates this last word instead of strength as praise. Praise. Interesting. So from the mouth of children and nursing infants, you have established praise for yourself. The point of that is that the glory of God in the heavens is so clear that even children can discern it and acknowledge it and praise God for it. Now, Jesus quoted this in Matthew twenty-one sixteen. Remember? You remember the scene. He rides into town on Palm Sunday and at the triumphal entry. And remember, the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the scribes were just getting irked and infurious about it. Infuriated. And Jesus replied to them, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Where do you think he got that from? He got that from this psalm. And Jesus was using the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The point was, the reason why that infuriated the scribes 
and the priests so much more is because who is this psalm ascribing praise to from the lips of infants? Yahweh. The Lord of Israel, the Lord of all creation, the God of Israel, out of the mouth of infants and children ordained praise for Himself. And Jesus is taking that to Himself. Don't tell me Jesus never claimed to be God. (laughs) Okay? He did. Very directly. And it infuriated them. And by way of contrast... Look at back in verse 2. God's glory is opposed by infidels. It says, Because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Adversaries and enemies are those who simply deny God as Creator. They refuse to acknowledge that He owns them. This, uh, this word cease, do you see that? The very last word... It carries the idea of silencing them. God's creation silences the fools. They can deny it all they want, but, but there it is for everybody to see. It's plain as day. And so they are really shut up by simply the very existence of those things. Every night the moon and the stars are there. Every day the sun comes up. And nobody can deny it. And it's proof that God exists. The contrast here is that at the same time infants readily acknowledge creation, infidels reject it. Yet regardless of how the wicked assert themselves, they they simply cannot outdo the evidence that God exists. The reality of the glory of God in creation silences them. They're fools. The fool, Psalm 14, has said in his heart, there is no God. One writer said this of this verse. He said, the sound of children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. The sound of opposition is silenced by the babbling and chatter of children. What a contrast. What a king. I don't know how many of you have seen a movie by Ben Stein. It's called Expelled. How many of you have seen that? Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? You cannot speak in the science community about creation. You will be expelled from the community. You will be blacklisted. You will be thought a fool if you ascribe to the idea of a creator God, intelligent design. Despite the fact that God has made Himself known through general revelation, no one truly knows Him apart from special revelation. I just want to make sure we're clear on this because I think a lot of people get confused in this area. General revelation, the sun, the moon, and the stars, only condemns you. That tells you that God is out there and that He exists, but you still don't have special revelation yet. You still don't have the truth about redemption, and the love of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have the content of the Gospel. You simply have the idea that a Creator exists. That only condemns you. That just means you're accountable to Him. So you may believe there's a God, but that doesn't mean you're saved. So if you're here this morning and you say, I believe in God. Yes, but have you, 
Have you believed in the atonement of Christ for the sin of your soul? That's a whole different story. Let me ask you this morning, are you an infant or are you an infidel? I think you need to stop and ask yourself that question. Are you an infant or are you an infidel? Do you acknowledge your Creator or do you deny Him by your actions? We can look up at the heavens and we see the sun and the moon and the stars and we can say, God isn't out there. Or we can say, yes, He is. And I'm accountable to Him. He is my Creator. So do you acknowledge Him or do you deny Him? The display of God's glory in the creation is undeniable. While the infants affirm it, the infidels oppose it. In light of both responses, though, God deserves praise. God deserves praise. It should elicit praise because in both of these, God is praised. That's what the psalmist is saying. It brings up an interesting point for me as I thought about this, just trying to make some application here. Should we insist that public schools teach intelligent design or creationism? Should we insist on that? Think about it. Nature teaches children that truth. Isn't that what this psalm is saying? The very fact that the moon and the stars are in the heavens declare the glory of God, everybody knows that God exists. Right? That's what the Scripture says. God has revealed Himself in that way. We know that He's there. We know that He exists. We know that we're accountable to Him. But the infidels refuse Him. Right? So what's the big deal about teaching creationism or intelligent design in the school? They already know it. They just refuse it. What they need is not more general revelation. They need special revelation. They need the content of the gospel. People know God exists, beloved. They just refuse Him. What they need is the truth of the gospel to redeem their souls. I go back to my sermon last week. If we don't preach, how will they hear? The responsibility falls squarely on you. As a believer, you are entrusted with the gospel. I know some people were uncomfortable with some of my statements last week, and I don't want to go off on that. But the reality is, if somebody doesn't preach the gospel, if special revelation doesn't get into the hands of an unbeliever, then what? They're condemned. They're condemned. Oh, yeah, I know about election. But election is only the sovereign choice of God in eternity past, beloved. That does not include regeneration. It does not include the communication of the gospel. It does not include their believing in faith. And it does not include their salvation. Election is only one aspect of the whole transaction. They have to hear the gospel. And we have no idea who the elect are, do we? I don't see people walking around with big E's on their forehead. It would be nice if they did, but they don't. 
So that means everybody needs to hear the gospel. We need to preach it. God has already revealed himself in nature. He's already done that. People know he exists. We need to bring them the gospel. Secondly, the second compelling reason why God deserves all of our praise is that God's consideration of humans demonstrates his grace. Okay, so we, we have seen that God's creation of the heavens displays his glory. And now we're going to see that God's consideration of humans demonstrates his grace. There's another contrast in the text. You see it in verse 4. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm sorry. There's another contrast. And, and what it is this time is the puniness of mankind versus his prominence. Okay? It's man's puniness and his prominence. That is a demonstration of the grace of God. Despite mankind's insignificance in relation to creation, the Lord has taken an interest in mankind. He has given him dominion over his creation. It's a contrast between our puniness in relation to creation and our prominence over creation by God's grace. It's a demonstration of the grace of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him. David is here meditating, thinking about the Genesis 1 account, and he comes to the conclusion that man is nothing. Man is nothing. The, The verb here is not meditate, it's actually see. And it's an imperfect verb, which means that the action is is continual. So, also the word fingers. Look at the word fingers in the text. Do you see that? It conveys a more personal and a more intimate creative activity. So it's like a sculptor fashioning clay. And and David says, when I look at all of this, all the things you have made with your fingers, I think to myself, what is man? What is man that you would even take notice of him? In contrast to God, the heavens are tiny. They are pushed and they are prodded into shape by the divine digits. But in contrast to the heavens, which seem so vast from the human perspective, it's, it's mankind that is actually tiny and puny. We're nothing. We're nothing. So David is saying, as often as I see, and the thought arises within me, or I say to myself, what am I? but nothing. And why would you consider me? This idea of um, man too, this is what we call synonymous parallelism here. What is man and the son of man? Those two thoughts parallel each other and the idea of taking thought of him and caring for him parallel each other. They amplify the thought. This idea of man and the son of man, the words being used here are anosh, Enosh and Ben Adam. And what it means is mankind and his frailty. The word Enosh is always used of man and his frailty. And the, and the idea of Ben Adam, the son of Adam, is the idea that he's taken from the ground, that he's weak, that he's dust, he's nothing. So, so the idea is that God takes thought of or he cares for man or he 
He remembers them or He takes an interest in them or He visits them in His weakened condition. When we are at our most helpless, most nothing, God, in a sense, stoops down and condescends and cares for us. So David looks at the moon, he looks at the stars, and he feels how small he is, just like I do when I stand next to the beach. And it caused him to meditate on God's grace, the grace of God that He would even consider us or that He would visit us in in our nothingness. Beloved, he understands himself rightly and he recognizes the grace of God. He recognizes the grace of God. I'm going to read a quote for you. It's a little bit extended. I normally don't read something so long, but this really fits, I think. As David looks at the moon and the stars, the author says, the first feeling is an overpowering sense of man's insignificance in the presence of the vastness and splendor, the mysterious depth and the exceeding glory of the heavens as seen at night. The vault of the sky arched at a vast and unknown distance over our heads. The stars, apparently infinite in number, each keeping, each keeping its appointed place and course and seeming to belong to a wide system of things that has no relation to the earth. While man is but one among many millions of earth's inhabitants, all this makes the contemplative spectator feel how exceedingly small a portion of the universe he is. How little he must be in the eyes of an intelligence which can embrace the whole. Add to this the revelation of darkness, the revelation of silence, The man is alone. The stir and the noise of his own works, which in the light of day filled and absorbed him, are hushed and buried in darkness. His importance is gone. And yet God considers and cares for him despite this lack of importance. Beloved, we're puny. We are puny nothingness. We are a speck of dust on one globe in a vast universe of God's creation. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to have these dreams. I was like two or three years old. And I'd be sleeping. And and as I was dreaming, I had this dream that this giant black cloud just came over me. And it used to scare me to death. I had the recurring dream over and over again. And I used to come out in the middle of the night crying because I felt so small and so helpless. Have you ever felt that way before? I mean, you look up at the night sky and you see the panorama of God's glory and the stars and nature and heaven and all of creation. Or you go to the beach and you look out there and you see the distant horizon and you realize, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm a speck of dust. Here for a moment, gone in a breath. Right? Beloved, we are puny. But here's the point. You're significant because God says you are. Don't miss that, okay? Don't walk out of here thinking I'm a puny nothing worm. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to understand your puniness in order to understand the grace of God. 
You have to understand God rightly. That's why psychology and self-esteem are such unbiblical concepts, beloved. You need to stop and think about this for a minute. Self-esteem is an unbiblical concept. Your importance in life does not come from your own estimation of yourself. Do you realize that? Your importance in life comes from who God thinks you are. Not who you think you are. It matters not what you think about yourself. What you need to understand is the fact that the God of the universe has taken an interest in you. He sees you as important. That is where your significance lies. That way, beloved, it's all about Him and it's not all about you. God is the Creator. He is the one whose glory is set in the heavens. He is the one who has taken notice of you, an insignificant speck in the vast cosmos. You're significant this morning because God says you are. Which leads us to verses 5 to 8. And that's our prominence. Look at this. Our nothingness is contrasted with the fact that God has taken an interest in mankind. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. The verb here, look, look back at the text with me, verse 5. You have caused him to lack is what it really means. You have caused him to lack a little from God. That's what it says in the original. These verses, I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing new to you. These verses were applied to Christ throughout the New Testament, right? He was made a little lower than God for a time. This is how we understand this. But, but what it's talking about is that Jesus, as the ultimate man, was given ultimately universal dominion as the Son of God. He ultimately fulfills this idea of the dominion being given to mankind because He was the ultimate man. He's the God-man. And so, Hebrews 2, 6-8, through 8, 1 Corinthians 15.27 and Ephesians 1.22 talk about this idea of the Son of Man being given universal dominion over everything. All things are literally under His feet. As I said, this is ultimately a reference to Genesis 1.26-27. I won't turn you there because I'm running late. But mankind is created in the image of God, Right? Some people have taken this as lower for a little time than the angels. But that's not what it says. Elohim nowhere occurs in the sense of angels. This is not a reference to time. It's a reference to position. What it's talking about is the fact that man has been given dominion over God's creation. God values man in such a way that He created everything and He made man lower than God and gave him the privilege of stewardship over his creation. We are, in a sense, God's viceroys. You see, it says He crowned him with glory and honor. Those are 
descriptions of mankind's royal status as God's viceroys. You could understand this as saying, having made him a little less than divine or God, Elohim, you've crowned him. You've crowned him. The idea of glory and honor here. Glory means dignity, i.e. that which is weighty. It's the Hebrew word kavod. And the latter term, honor, is kind of the, the external show and the splendor of it all. Man has been given glory and honor and has been given dominion over the works of God's hands. Notice verse 6 as well, the word all. It literally says, all things you put under his feet, all sheep and oxen and so on. And notice, if you will, that it's used twice and it's used emphatically, but notice it doesn't say man was given dominion over the earth, the planet, the environment. It says that he's given dominion over the animals. He defines the, the all things here as sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, which is literally behemoths, birds of the skies and fish of the sea, everything that passes through the seas, that's what man has been given dominion over. And that comes right out of the Genesis 1 account. Right? So here's how I understand this verse. Through God's incredible condescension to man, He has made man great. A little less than divine, if you will, and Lord over all of His creation. This little speck of dust, God has elevated to this position. You have value this morning because God says you have value, beloved. He has made it so. You are made in His image. You've been entrusted with the stewardship of the work of His hands. How much more important do you think you could be Uh, look back at the text with me. Interestingly, you know, the psalmist could have said that he was made a little higher than the beasts. That's not how he chose to phrase it, did he? He didn't say we're higher than the beasts. He said we're lower than God. That's significant, beloved. It's significant. One writer said this, in awe of one's immense smallness in the grandiose spectacle, The gaze turns on the self as one becomes aware that the human, small and insignificant, a breath and a shadow is a marvel of the universe. The privilege stems from God's creative initiative and rests on incomprehensible grace. As they discover and praise God, they recognize their true dignity, a discovery which confounds God's enemies. Beloved, evolution is a damnable heresy. Do you know why? It's true. It's, it's not true. That's why. But, but it robs man of his dignity. It makes him one level above the beasts. Only a fool would imbibe such a ridiculous heresy. It not only contradicts the Word of God but it's a damnable heresy. You have dignity this morning. You have worth. You have value because the Creator of the universe says you do. You are not one step up from the beasts. 
I hope there is nobody here that imbibes that heresy. The heavens declare man to be one step down from God, not one step up from the animals. You matter this morning because God says you matter. Because God has stooped down from the heavens, He has condescended, and He has cared for you. He has cared for you, and He has visited you, and He has taken thought of you, and He has remembered you. He should be praised with everything we have this morning. The psalm closes with a repetition again. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. All He's got to do is think on this truth and the reflection of it all. And it's like a sustained musical note, right? Ping! And it just vibrates out. Lord, You're just so majestic. You're so glorious. How majestic is Your name in all the earth. What an amazing thought. You know, beloved, God is indeed deserving of all our praise. God has considered you in a very special way this morning. Has He not? I want you to think on Philippians 2 with me this morning as we conclude here. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ, who had all the rights of glory, all the rights of deity, humbled Himself in mind and in considering mankind, He stooped down to condescend to become a man to become a servant and to suffer and die on that cross for you. The God of the universe has considered you this morning in His beloved Son. He has taken notice of you. He has condescend to you. And I am begging you this morning not to refuse the extension of God's hand for you. If you have not embraced the hand of God that has reached down to you and condescended to you in Christ Jesus, I'm telling you this morning, repent and believe and embrace the only one who is able to save your soul. That one who left the throne of glory in heaven and offers you peace with God. Peace with this Creator. Through His own blood shed for you. Beloved, there is a way for you to be right with God this morning. There is a way for you to be right with your Creator. Don't walk out of here and not take it. Take it. It's available this morning in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask the men to come forward. We're going to celebrate communion together here this morning. If you are serving communion, why don't you come on down here? Folks, this table represents the reality that God has condescended to us in His beloved Son. These elements represent that Son who was sent for you an insignificant speck in the universe, considered worthy by God, that God would deny His own rights 
and that he would consider you above himself. That's what this table represents. This is the blood and the body of Christ who was given for you. For you. We do this in memorial because our Savior died for us. God has considered us this morning. God has taken notice of us. He has visited us in His beloved Son. And He deserves all praise for it. This is a memorial of praise, beloved. Let's partake together. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning who stepped out of the throne of eternity, the throne room of grace, and condescended to suffer and die on that cross for us. Father, we who are so insignificant, so small compared to You and Your your creation, and yet, our Father, You have taken notice of us. Wow. What grace. What humility. What condescension. What love. Father, we are overwhelmed this morning. May You impress upon our hearts Your incredible love for us this morning as we partake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Folks, as we take together this morning, I'd just like you to say one thing with me. Let's recite that verse together, okay? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your beloved Son. Father, for condescending from heaven to redeem our souls. This morning as we take communion together, we do praise you, our Father. How majestic, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's partake together, beloved. Ron's going to come up and lead us in our last song. If there is something you would like to talk with me about after the service, I'll be right over here. If you, God has revealed himself to you in a special way this morning or if God has been working in your life and you would like to talk, I'll be over here uh, under the cross after the service. God bless you this morning. Would you please take your hymn books and turn to 560? 560 will sing the arrowed verses 1, 3, and 5. Let's stand together to sing.